We're live here, Lensec Live and What's Your Perspective show, and I am Neil Haley. I am part of the Inside Sales Team and also What's Your Perspective radio show show host, and I am with Keith Harris of Lensec. Keith, how are you? And how are you? How doing are great. Yeah, that's awesome. We're doing great. Yeah, everything's I, looking good here. Absolutely. I'm excited about a lot of the guests we have lined up in the next couple of weeks. We talked about that last week on the show. And what's really amazing about the guests that we're going to have on the show are they're going to really provide us some great tips and things to learn about in physical security in certain verticals. And our guest today is Sheila Stein. And Sheila is a healthcare attorney. Sheila, thanks for stopping by. What's your perspective? How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Neil. Absolutely, Sheila. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and your experience in, in law, especially healthcare law? Sure thing. I've been a healthcare lawyer for going on 25 years now. I've represented all different kinds of healthcare providers and hospitals uh, across the spectrum. I'm currently working for uh, a prominent electronic medical record software company that provides uh, electronic medical records. Oh, very interesting. And uh, from that process, healthcare's changed a lot, hasn't it? In the it, way it, the, the attorneys it, look at it, especially on one side versus the other side of the of the the bench, in certain ways, right? Absolutely, healthcare is constantly changing, especially the regulatory environment. It's really hard to keep up with everything, and it's always a moving target. And uh, of course, you know, the technology side of it is a huge piece of the business. Absolutely. Yeah. So, All right, Keith, so um, uh, the technology side of it. Is, I'm sorry, Neil. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Keith. Go. I was going to ask you, Sheila, um, in terms of uh, technology updates that are going on in healthcare administration. What are some of the things you're, that you're seeing? I think the biggest thing impacting healthcare right now in the in the technology sector is cybersecurity. Um, obviously. Um, Healthcare providers may not even realize this, but you're an active target for bad guys. The data that uh, the healthcare providers maintains has actual real value, a lot of value on the black market. And so um, healthcare is actively, actively being attacked with viruses and malware and hacking and even now ransomware is impacting healthcare, phishing emails. Uh, and of course, you know, the other uh, cybersecurity threats just have to do with your own, you know, the way you protect your own environment with the way you're controlling your data and, um, you know, your, your technical administrative and physical controls over that data. And, you know, and you talk yeah. about that whole process of cyber, how much more have you seen cyber problems, especially during the pandemic, just in cybersecurity alone, looking at specifically enough how, uh, you know, criminals are working differently than they were before the pandemic? Uh, you know, um, there are active cyber threats um, directed to healthcare because of COVID. Um, there's a huge number of fake websites out there that have, for instance, COVID in the name of the website, uh, or you may receive phishing emails that contend that uh, there's a, uh, there, was a, there was a phishing campaign out that said, there's going to be a national quarantine. That was malware. Um, there's all kinds of lures out there that have to do with COVID-19. Also, the bad guys are actively exploiting uh, a lot of the healthcare providers because, honestly, some healthcare providers scrambled to rapidly um, bring their workforce remote and to start engaging in telehealth or telemedicine in a way that they hadn't done before. 
the bad guys are aware of that and have really been actively exploiting some of the new setups. And In fact, um, they're one of the resources that I've provided Keith that he may want to uh, bring up on the screen is an alert that the Homeland Security Department, along with the um, Cyber Inform Information Security Agency, CISA, put out uh, describing some of these very specific COVID threats that are impacting healthcare. Wow. You know, when you think about it. Is this it, the right one, Sheila? No, that's a, a HIPAA white paper security. Um, okay, uh, let me paper, pull up the. Uh, it's the other one I provided. Got it. Okay. Yeah, when yeah, I start is, thinking about how quickly and how smart they are, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it really summarizes a lot of these attacks. And these attacks aren't limited to healthcare. This just happen to be uh, some of the ones that are really, uh, the Homeland Security felt like it was important to let healthcare providers know about. Absolutely. And phishing is yeah, phishing So uh, is always... you talked a little bit about phishing and, uh, and text message uh, phishing is, is on the rise right now. A lot of people are, are getting uh, uh, phished via their, their uh, phone. As a matter of fact, I think I had one just a few minutes before this call started. I had one that, that came up. It was really weird. Yeah, they're very sophisticated. And it's, that's yeah. why it's very important for healthcare providers and anyone in, 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 you know, anyone in business, frankly, to teach their workforce to recognize what a phishing email looks like. Yeah, definitely. And when we talk about, you know, we've talked about cybersecurity, but really a lot of our focus, definitely in one sec, is the physical security aside. And tell us specifically enough what you see, the kind of things that you see in physical security regarding the vertical market of healthcare. Well, you know, um, healthcare is very, very heavily regulated. And it's regulated on an under, under a number of laws. HIPAA is a primary driver of the regulations of, of, of physical security for healthcare, and it is very complex. Um, in addition, there are, uh, there are laws under each state. There are federal laws like the Federal Trade Commission that may apply to some of the non-healthcare data that the um, practices may be handling. And of course, uh, every state in the nation has a data breach uh, notification law. So uh, healthcare is regulated left and right with respect to what's required for physical security. Uh, and if you like, I can talk about some of those regulations or you know, what are some of the best practices for physical security, whatever you like, Neil. And I, and I kind of, Keith, if you have a question, I'll, I'll let you go, but I kind of want to lead into specifically enough. Take us there. Take us to specifically enough, you know, a hospital first, because there's a lot of different vertical markets we can look at involving healthcare. There's the hospital, and mm -hmm. there also is the doctor's office and an urgent care type of smaller environment. So when we talk about a hospital, the security, what do they focus on in security? What is that goal, that security team, when you talk about specifically healthcare? Well, you know, there isn't, I think when you look at physical security for the various types of healthcare lines of business, the regulations apply equally to all of those healthcare facilities, but they're scalable and they're dependent upon the complexity and the uh, budgetary resources of the organization. So how you approach your physical security in your hospital versus your small one-doc practice is going to be quite different, but we're going to be talking about the same kind of controls. And obviously with physical security, the very first thing that you're going to talk about is access to your facility itself, whether that be the internal getting into the building or getting within the building itself. And so you're going to be talking about the methods that you're going to be protecting that, that security and who is authorized to handle 
uh, or, or enter or exit certain areas of the building or um, internal rooms? And how are you going to be monitoring that, whether that be with software uh, like Lensec provides with your cameras and uh, video surveillance or with uh, badge readers that are connected to software that say uh, someone has entered the medication room, for example. And yeah, most that's one thing that I wanted to bring up because uh, you were talking earlier about um, cybersecurity and some of the malwares and Trojan wares that are out there. There's This is actually like a sneaker wear. This is people that are actually physically entering in and engaging in uh, facilities that may not, they may have just helped themselves to the back office uh, while people are away at lunch and, you know, they're, they're accessing information. You have to really be cautious about that and keep things on lockdown and keep a close eye on your environment and the assets that you have, not only the assets you have, but the, the people that are there as well. You have to keep it all safe and secure. That's right. And the best way to approach that, no matter what size or complexity your organization is, is to have a formal facility security plan. And that it just documents what the expectations are for the facility. And that could be anything from uh, door locks to warning signs to having surveillance cameras, having alarms, control tags and engraving on equipment, things like that, your actual ID badges or different colored badges, depending on what your role is. Or if you're a visitor, you're going to have a particular badge or be escorted. And right. even um, whether you're going to have security patrols on your uh, property, like um, uh, security guards. You know, yeah. and I think think your office, Sheila, is the sharing space with another organization. So you have mm -hmm. uh, multiple organizations within the same building. So you have a lot of people moving through hallways and around um, common use areas also. Absolutely. At EMDs, we share uh, the building with a number of different organizations, some of which are not subject to the same kind of heavy regulations that we are. So not only is planning and documenting critically important for physical security, but the culture of awareness and compliance with our staff is also very important. So training people how to recognize uh, a bad actor or somebody who may just be lost and actually taking the uncomfortable step of stopping them and asking them, hey, can I help you find where you're going? You know, and I think about where they're going and all those different things, figuring out sometimes it's too late. You look at specific things, Sheila, and somebody infiltrates certain things like takes certain medications or is in an area that they shouldn't be in. For example, the maternity ward, they're very highly secured where only certain people can go in and out of those areas, but other parts of the hospital are different. So as a security team, you have to identify which ones are more of a risk, right? Mm -hmm. And that's important to look at. Yeah, it's interesting now with COVID how uh, facility access has changed dramatically depending on the kind of provider you are. For instance, ERs, many ERs are overwhelmed and they're not even allowing visitors to come in. They've just shut down access unless you are, are an admitted patient. But on the other end of the spectrum is your maybe your one or two doc practice who shut down working from home and nobody's watching that office. So that increases the physical security risks for them while their office is sitting there with nobody coming in and out regularly and watching it, it increases the risk of a theft and increases the time necessary maybe to get to network equipment if something actually happens. Absolutely. It's sad that we have to think of all these, these ways to prevent people from doing things that they're not supposed to do. It's, but it's kind of the nature of the culture that we're in. And I'm thankful we have technology to help us um, bring all that together 
and manage it a little bit better. Is there any uh, management techniques that you'd recommend for people uh, on bringing their physical security in and what they need to be thinking about on a broader level uh, in order to uh, make their, their footprint more secure? In healthcare, risk management is driven, again, by heavy regulations coming from a number of different areas, whether it's HIPAA or the, the Joint uh, Accreditation Organizations or the Affordable Health Care Act. And so um, risk management is actually legally required in this industry. And, um, you know, when we talk about risk management, we need to understand what that means. And to me, that means looking at reasonably anticipated threats to your physical security. What is likely to happen in your physical environment and what would the impact be if it actually happened? And so we're going to be anticipating those threats, figuring out what happens if that risk actually comes to fruition and what can we do now in advance knowing that that's a reasonably anticipated threat to mitigate the threat, reduce the risk, or even in some circumstances, it may be appropriate to accept some lower risks. And some of the things on physical, physical security that you're going to be considering are things like your backups of your data or your backups of your audit log of your movement of your people and your, your equipment. What are you going to do when there is an emergency? How are you going to bring your, uh, your business back up online if there is a flood or a tornado? How are you going to train your people? Uh, what are the expectations uh, and how frequently are, are they going to be taught? Um, What's your protocol for reporting risks and escalating it within your organization? Um, and finally, one of the really important uh, risks to consider with physical security is your insurance. Do you have insurance for uh, physical property damage or even cyber risks that are out there that can impact your, your property? And so hospitals, a lot of times, how much uh, risk insurance, insurance do they have to carry regarding yeah. their security? There's no, um, to my knowledge, no requirement of a minimum level. It's just good business. It makes good business sense. But if you consider the cost of, for instance, a data breach, the cost of a data breach, I think, uh, runs sometimes in the hundreds of dollars per record per individual. So if you have a database with um, 10,000 people impacted, you can see that the bill for that is going to be very, very expensive. So you have to consider how much data you have, what's your risk, if you have uh, that sort of impact and then decide what you can afford with respect to insurance. So it really varies across the board. How does that differ from um, more like the doctor's offices and the clinics, a smaller operation? Where do you see them sitting in, the, in their planning for, for managing their risk? Well, I always like to think about it this way. Doctors and nurses and healthcare providers and professionals are not security experts. Historically, they have not been technologically savvy when it comes to their IT security. And they very largely rely on third parties or uh, maybe a staff member to handle their, um, their physical security and their other technical security. And so it's really, really important for those smaller providers to make sure that their vendors are, um, that they've done the due diligence, that they're not dealing with a shoddy vendor that is maybe unfamiliar with what the requirements are and maybe not taking all the best practice steps for a provider of that size. You know, it's interesting, Sheila, now we talk about how important security is in hospitals and healthcare facilities of certain uh, doctor's offices, urgent cares, things like that. But the problem is that security has to follow certain rules because of HIPAA. So kind of explain that to us because that's something that's 
kind of throws a monkey wrench of really wanting the best security at times because HIPAA has certain privacy laws that makes it more difficult uh, to expose certain security assets, right? You know, the first thing I would say is that just because you are compliant with HIPAA doesn't mean that you have a best practice security environment. Um, HIPAA should be considered the floor or the minimum of what is required. And it's, it's the minimum of the legal uh, safeguards that are administrative, technical, and physical in nature to protect not only the confidentiality of the information, but the integrity of it and the availability of it. So those are just the minimum basic requirements. Um, you know, you can look to organizations like the National Institute of Standards and Technology and, uh, you know, try to determine some of the best practices. I think another resource, um, Keith, is a white paper that the Department of Health and Human Services put out that describes what those minimum physical security controls are. Um, I've supplied that for uh, your audience today um, to just know what the, what the minimums are. But again, uh, you really should be trying to do the most you can do with what you can afford because uh, the bad guys have unlimited resources and they are actively targeting you. So it's important for a provider of any size to adequately budget for and consider what the reasonable anticipated risks are for their organization. And we'll make these uh, resources available in the, the comments below after the event is over. Um, but uh, we're looking here at some of the physical safeguards. You've got uh, facility access controls. It looks like a standard that's, uh, that's lined out here. Um, and these look like they're coming from uh, Department of Healthcare and Human Services, is that right? Yes, this is the organization that uh, regulates HIPAA and has put this white paper out as an educational material for providers to know what to expect under the HIPAA regulations. What are the minimum required or uh, otherwise addressable standards that the regulators expect them to have? It's by no means uh, an example of best practices. It's just, again, the minimum standards. Now, Right. I was trying to bring this question up, Sheila, regarding HIPAA and the fact that if you want to use lots of video surveillance, I have been in many hospitals since I've been in this industry, and I feel that they're not covered enough video surveillance-wise. Is it HIPAA the reason? Because they're concerned of privacy issues that you don't see as many cameras, per se, that you would see maybe in a school district or other facilities? You know, I think it's probably more an issue of resources um, than it is uh, HIPAA issues because HIPAA certainly permits video surveillance under certain circumstances in the patient healthcare setting. So I don't see the regulations as an obstacle to doing that, but uh, healthcare is strapped. The resources, their funding uh, is, is um, difficult to, under the federal uh, financial participation um, that many hospitals rely on. Um, and so it's just a matter of juggling. I mean, you have so many different resources you have to throw at, at IT security um, and video surveillance is just one of them. I think it's a very important and very useful tool for the healthcare industry, um, hospitals, and even smaller practices to have things like video surveillance because it offers an excellent uh, view and auditable view of what's actually happening in for instance, your medical records room or your, uh, your drug dispension room uh, or even your waiting area to see if, if somebody becomes hostile or violent or if there's some sort of criminal activity. It can be very useful to law enforcement to have that video uh, to support 
what's actually happening there. Okay. And I think to think that it changes the public's behavior a little bit, knowing that they're under surveillance. And I'm shocked, like some of the places in Pittsburgh, the cameras, how old they are and how outdated and, and uh, archaic some of the stuff in Pittsburgh. Might be different at different hospitals, but I've noticed that looking at cameras, looking at specifically how things are done. But later in this interview, we will kind of touch upon the new normal. Actually, I guess I should have, when I heard that word the first time, registered that, Keith, and I would not be sitting here right now because you know how much <laughs> that is worth now? That URL is like a million dollars. I heard new a, normal, a great yeah. uh, story this morning of uh, law enforcement using surveillance cameras to prevent, identify and prevent what was about to be um, riotous behavior that would have been very damaging to um, personal property. They used that surveillance to identify the culprit and stop it before it happened. And that is no different than what can happen in a healthcare setting if appropriate personnel are monitoring what's going on on those cameras. Well, a lot of people have said that um, um, video surveillance is more reactionary than it is proactive, but I disagree. I think mm -hmm. if you've got um, the right resources in place um, with uh, event notification and, um, you know, the right video analytics, face recognition, even uh, license plate recognition, then you can have um, a more proactive stance. Yes, it's Absolutely. more expensive and you pay for it. But um, putting some of those measures in place can really help to create a nice proactive stance that allows you to prevent um, security issues from occurring. They can stop the problem before it happens. I agree. And in the case, when we're dealing with the case in Minnesota, that video surveillance gave the whole process, not just what a, a bystander filmed, the surveillance cameras outside of the stores where where they filmed everything was able to piece together everything to show what truly happened because if they didn't have all that so that's why it's important in my opinion to have a lot more cameras in uh outs out there uh for video sound especially in facilities different places like that so you can catch those things before it's too late for example we're talking about covid19 but God forbid there was something that was something that was some sort of a terroristic act of some sort that brought something in that could, you know, harm so many people. And yet they were able to figure it out. So I think that everyone needs to be on guard. And it's it's a it's a proactive thing. Video surveillance. Mm -hmm. Now, Sheila, when you talk about, you know, specifically enough, the HIPAA and all that stuff. So it's very good to know that HIPAA does not deter using video surveillance because you think about it that when we're trained in HIPAA and we look at things and we sign these HIPAA things, we think ultimately it's only our concern, meaning the, the patient, that's the person who's being protected most by HIPAA. And that's not true, is it, if, from what I'm hearing you now? Because if, if, you, if it was just the patient's concerns, then some of these other measures wouldn't be in place in security, right? Well, HIPAA was designed as a measure to protect patient privacy. But it also is designed as a measure to permit treatment and obtain payment and conduct hospital operations in consideration with, you know, to balance the rights of the patients. Okay. I have a question for you in, in regards to uh, the pandemic. And uh, my question is, uh, are, is there anything there that's changing how uh, some of the security protocols 
that uh, that we see in doctors' offices and medical clinics in uh, hospitals um, across the board. Absolutely. Is there anything on the change? Yeah, and I think the first thing um, that I would say is the medical community is under trial by fire. Uh, I think largely the community was not set up to have their workforce working remotely. The, the culture is to have people present in the healthcare, um, typical healthcare office or hospital. And so having so many people move remotely so quickly was very challenging for the industry. It's also important to consider that um, with the shutdowns and with the cancellations of elective procedures and surgeries and people's concerns about going into the doctor for routine uh, wellness checks, that the budgets of healthcare providers have been impacted by COVID. Uh, I think I read a statistic that something like 67% of healthcare providers have had a financial hit of about 30% of their normal revenue in the last couple of months. I think that that is beginning to turn around now that health, a lot of people have moved towards telehealth and some of the shutdowns are being lifted. But, uh, you know, they have a budget to work with like every, everybody else does. And the COVID has impacted uh, their ability to spend on everything, whether it's payroll or IT security. Um, and uh, I, I think that uh, one of the issues with remote work also is bandwidth. And so is your system set up to uh, handle the bandwidth of having your entire workforce trying to use a virtual private network to get in. Um, and of course, like we mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, there are active cyber threats related to COVID in the healthcare industry that are making IT security very challenging right now. Absolutely. And that's scary to know about the whole cyber thing, but, in, but again, the whole thing. So if you're thinking that new normal, I think that the biggest thing I was talking to a healthcare professional talking about gowns, talking about specifically how many times you clean things up. And you're seeing that legally, right, as well with COVID-19, right? That certain facilities have to follow these. Is it a law now? Uh, yeah, there, are there, there are many infectious disease control laws out there that have been in place uh, and, and may have been uh, updated, especially with respect to CDC guidance. Um, but infection control has always been at the forefront in the healthcare community. Uh, I think that we're uh, probably seeing maybe more unique and different ways of trying to do with what we can uh, with when protective equipment is not available. Um, but I've, I've even seen uh, recently newer technology to help with infection control, like electrostatic sprays that may be utilized in the healthcare industry in ways that they haven't before. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's uh, you know, always been at the forefront to control infection, but we're seeing uh, regulations and guidance trying to improve that every day. One of your favorite topics, contact tracing. Uh -huh. Tell me about contact tracing. Yes. <laughs> and it's okay. Nobody's judging you here. I want to hear about it. Tell me, tell me what yes. you're thinking about that. I'll, I'll just preface this by saying I have a, a young daughter who's socially active on social media. Uh, uh, you know, she's a social media influencer and, and she was saying how exciting it is to have COVID contact tracing. And I was explaining to her some of the, the risks to you as a person with your privacy when um, your movements start being tracked by uh, businesses like uh, some of the social media giants or even some of the public health authorities, because I think they can be misused. And a lot of the privacy nerds like myself are engaged in debate about how to appropriately use contract tracing to help the public and at the same time not violate your personal privacy and freedoms. 
Wow. So I will There's not a be lot there. I mean, apps to describe my movements with respect to COVID anytime. Now, so it's what, a big topic. The, yeah. This topic, the other topic out is the grants that could be available for contact tracing, mm-hmm. especially video surveillance, which again, a lot of people are disagreeing with. Again, our country's divided in many ways. But as an attorney, what are your concerns regarding that, that they're going to use uh, video surveillance in a way to, I guess, eliminate some of our freedoms? Do you feel that there'll be lawsuits and stuff going? I don't, I don't know about lawsuits, but, you know, we have to understand that public surveillance is out there already. It's happening in every major city already. So you're already being monitored when you go outside on a public street. And in my opinion is, you don't have an expectation of, of not being filmed when you are uh, out in public. Um, now, when you start talking about uh, monitoring my behavior in my home or yeah. monitoring my movements in a way that is not afforded um, as a governmental right, that's when I start having concerns. Yeah. But I, I don't have an issue necessarily with utilization of technology to protect the public in a way that is fair and reasonable. Okay, interesting. Keith, anything else to add to ask you? Yeah, well, you know, there's we've been seeing a lot of the, the tracing issues come up out of China and some other more restrictive com- countries, um, you know, in a place like China where where they the, the government manufactures and, and makes all the phones. They pretty much do whatever they want to do in terms of uh, um, tracing their their subjects and, and tracing tracing their citizens and monitoring their movements. Um, but I think there's a big difference there in what we what we would and should see here within the United States, where we have more um, civil rights than uh, some more restrictive countries have. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing and unique time in civil liberty uh, circles right now to talk about how to balance um, our constitutional rights and freedoms in the country that we're blessed to live in versus. Uh, protecting the larger public. So there's a lot of debate to be had on the issue for sure. Well, Sheila, I appreciate you stopping by and giving us all this great information regarding uh, physical security and cybersecurity in healthcare. Is there anything else you'd like to add before uh, the the end of the show? Yeah, I would would just recommend those in the industry to um, really focus on uh, the risk assessments, and especially uh, with their data backups. Um, if I see anything in this industry, it is the, the, the practices that aren't protected sufficiently with physical controls um, and technical controls and um, are hit by the bad guys. They're hit with ransomware or they're hit with malware and they're wiped out. And um, just uh, prevention is your best medicine in this environment. Very good. Well, Keith, it was a great guest, uh, always exciting things. And we have some exciting guests coming up next on uh, What's Your Perspective, don't we, Keith, next week? Yeah, next week we're going to have Nathan Parr with the Cool Solutions Group. He uh, is actually an expert in uh, uh, church facilities, um, you know, places of worship, uh, and he's going to provide us with some perspective about how uh, many of the religious organizations are working to get back together to meet publicly um, they have a lot to think about, and I'm sure he's got some pretty great uh, topics and uh, best practices for us. And looking at before that with uh, certain shootings and things, it's interesting to discuss those things, but also the new normal when it comes to attending church. As uh, uh, Catholic churches, I think, are going to start to open up in 
Pennsylvania very soon, so especially Pittsburgh. So uh, good information to discuss. And, you know, will, will COVID be passed on more in those environments? So looking forward to that. Yes. Uh, everyone, we already told uh, Sheila, can we find information on you or is it best just to kind of um, uh, message us at Lensec if you have questions? Yeah, I would be happy to answer questions if, if you want to reach out to uh, Keith and Neil. Mm -hmm. All right. Awesome. Remember always, if you missed this broadcast or missed or starting to finish up the broadcast, go to lensec.com slash live and you can check out all of our other live uh, shows and we're going to be available on different podcasts, but you can follow us at Lensec on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, all those places as, as we're not just live right now on Facebook, we're live on LinkedIn and YouTube, all of those places, but go to lensec.com and we can answer your questions right now. So I appreciate it. And it was an awesome Lensec Live. What's your perspective show? And I'm looking forward to next week. So take care, everybody. Thank you. Welcome to Safety Talk. Personal safety expert Pete Canavan shares his insights and interviews experts who provide simple and effective tips, techniques, and technologies to keep you safe and secure both online and off. Here's Pete. Hello, and welcome to Safety Talk. On this show, we discuss and bring attention to a wide range of personal safety and security products and solutions that are available to both businesses and individuals to keep you safer and more secure both online and off. I'm your host and personal safety expert, Pete Canavan. As a self-employed information technology consultant since 1995, as a martial artist for over 20 years, I bring decades of personal safety and security experience to my role as the host of this show. To learn more about how I can help your corporation, college, or conference, you can visit my personal website at PeteCanavan.com. So thanks so much to our listeners for being here. We really appreciate you helping us spread the word about Safety Talk and sharing in your social circles. And a hot topic is today is telemedicine. And on today's episode, we have a doctor who will be talking with us uh, about it and as well as some other medical-related topics. And he is a, an award-winning physician, speaker, aging expert, and author. He is known as the anesthesiologist to the stars and is one of the most sought-after physicians in California. He trained at Stanford and UCLA and has built a career attending to some of the most complex patients in the San Francisco, California area. He has spent years on the front lines of healthcare, treating both adults and children with uncontrolled pain, as well as other complicated medical issues. He is an authority on wellness and advanced nutrition, and has a new book out titled, Why Doctors Skip Breakfast, Wellness Tips to Reverse Aging, Treat Depression, and Get a Good Night's Sleep. And couldn't we all use some of those? <laughs> Uh, the book reveals insider Hollywood secrets on how you can say goodbye to chronic disease and pain, continuously look your best, and maximize your performance and immune system, which is obviously so important, as we hear about in the news on almost a consistent basis today. Uh, he owns a telemedicine clinic in Beverly Hills, California, and right now, as telehealth is exploding, as people are either unable or unwilling to visit doctors in person, uh, and vice versa, it's become extremely important. So as part of today's episode, we will be discussing the five reasons why telemedicine has come of age and is here to stay, and why this is the perfect time for a patient to visit their doctor from home. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Gregory Charlotte to Safety Talk. Welcome, doctor. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Sure. We're uh, very happy to have you on the show to talk about telemedicine and some other topics, obviously your new book as well. 
because, you know, as we all know, uh, you and I and everyone else that, you know, our personal safety or in our health is of paramount importance. You know, if we're not feeling well, it's hard to focus on other things, especially when we have things like chronic pain or, you know, something that's always nagging at us. It, it really is difficult to focus on the other tasks at hand, whether they are, you know, things that we have to do in our business or in our personal lives, you know, something as simple as, you know, working on your garden. If you're in pain all the time, you can't do that. So it really, you know, affects every area of our lives when, we, when we're not healthy. And so that's what, you know, this show Safety Talk is all about. We, we're all about improving the safety and security and health of others by any means necessary, including, you know, education, training, tools, uh, different skills and products, and, you know, hey, basically whatever it takes, right? So, Let's start off by, uh, by having you tell our audience about um, how you got involved in medicine in the first place, and we'll, we'll dive into some of the specifics. Sound good? Sure. Yeah, of course. So, you know, it's funny. My, my parents love telling the story. I think I was around nine or something like that. I was at a birthday party, and, you know, they have these parties like bowling alleys or skating rinks and that kind of thing. And so we had a lot of fun, and then we go to the party room. You know, they have like these rooms in the back, and there was a big cake there, and they were cutting the cake. And like all the kids are going crazy over the cake and I refuse to have any of the cake. I'm like this nine-year-old, like sort of precocious kid. And I'm like, no, I don't want to have it because it has too much sugar. And so, you know, my parents love telling the story. And I guess from a young age, I always cared a lot about nutrition. I mean, I was always into health and, you know, I, I used to have arguments like artificial sugar is bad or good and artificial colors and all these things. And I used to love doing all these experiments with health. So I've always loved health and nutrition in particular. Uh, ultimately, you know, I was in school, I went to college and I loved science and I wanted to try to figure out something I could do with it. And to be honest, I didn't think I had the patience to sit and do bench research. You know, I, I love people that do that, but it's, it's, it takes a lot of patience to do it. And I thought, you know, maybe something like medicine would be more my speed. So that's how I ended up uh, getting in, you know, going into medicine. And then I ended up becoming, I'm an anesthesiologist, like you said. And, uh, honestly, right. So how did you, is, how did you go from, you know, being that anesthesiologist and, you know, you know, someone who's very sought after in that, you know, realm and then sort of, you know, segue and, and become an expert in the, in the wellness and the, you know, the anti-aging area. Well, so, you know, so it's funny. So it, one of the big things about anesthesiologists, if you know any or you find them, we like to have things happen quickly. You know, like that's the hallmark of anesthesia. Like you like to do something and then you like to see its result. And so the way we think about medicine is very different than, say, like a lot of internists, you know, family medicine doctors do. They kind of, they do something, they'll start you on like a blood pressure pill and they'll wait, you know, six months, a year, you know, who knows if it's working. We like to do quick results. So a lot of a lot of what I'm into in medicine and a lot of the wellness stuff I'm into is actually like what could we do that will help you in the long term but will also give you quick results. And that of course kind of fits in with like what the Beverly Hills crowd is looking for. Because a lot of them, you know, there's a lot of celebrities and actors and things like that. And their careers depend on being healthy and looking good and um and, and so sure, their, their paychecks depend on it, right? <laughs> their paychecks depend on it, right. So uh, so it's a good thing they don't have quarantine hair like, like I have right now. So you'll, you'll have to forgive me for that. But, but you know, the, the stuff you could do that kind of works quickly and helps you feel better and look better and that kind of stuff, that, that's the kind of stuff I, I'm really into. And that, that's, that's, you know, so that, I guess that's where the anesthesia and the wellness stuff kind of tie in together. You know, having, we are a society that wants 
instant satisfaction. We want instant results. We want instant answers to information. You know, I mean, the internet's kind of spoiled everybody because you can, you know, search for anything and find answers. Now, some of that may be good information. Some of it may not be good information. Right. Right? And that's, that's part of the, the challenge sometimes is finding it, you know, especially when you're searching for, you know, health related information, you know, Oh, I've got a pain here. I have an ache here. Or why is, why do I have a bump on my, you know, whatever it happens to be that somebody's searching for. But when you have a solution to a problem that whatever it happens to be, and the person can see some, some quick results that can motivate them to stay the course for the long term, which ends up being, you know, better for their, their health uh, and longevity and, and helps them maintain, you know, youthful vigor and appearance and, and feeling good about themselves. So that's important. Right. Absolutely. Right. Right. And you know, that's the, I think you touched on two points, which I, I'm really happy you mentioned. One of them is sifting through all this online stuff. You know, everybody, you know, everybody does it. And I, I, I've been guilty of this too. We all go to Dr. Google, you know, and we, we type in our symptoms or we try to figure out what the problem is. And we hope Google will diagnose us. And, you know, that's tricky, you know, and, and you're obviously an expert in this type of thing. It's, it's, it's tricky because number one, you're putting out a lot of your personal information on there because now it's, you know, cookies and everything else, all these other websites know the problems you have. Right, <laughs> but, which, but on top of it, which, you know, you may not want, right? But, but on top of that, which, you know, which is why you see all these retargeted ads. But, but on top of that, you know, a lot of the stuff you're finding online is, has an agenda. You know, I, I mean, obviously there are some reliable sources, but many of them are, are written by people that are trying to sell something. Uh, they're by companies that, that have some sort of ad revenue and, and, and they want to make money off you. So you have to be careful. And then even the stuff that isn't necessarily trying to sell you something it, it may not be written by people who know what they're talking about. You know, right. someone just read something once or their cousin Joe told them who happens to be a, you know, a dermatologist. And, and so it gets online and then people, I think people give things too much credibility sometimes just because it's online. Well, yeah, it's online. It's got to be true, right? Right, right. <laughs> well, you see it in writing, you know. So once you see something in writing, you know. But the other thing you mentioned, which is also important, which is, I mean, some aspects of wellness they're the long game, you know? So sure. for example, like I'm a big fan of taking turmeric and I take gobs of the stuff. I add it to food. I, I take it as like capsules, you know, I, I take it as much as I can. And a lot of the doctors I work with, the people that are into this stuff, everybody takes turmeric and you don't really see any immediate benefit from that, you know? So you do it. And honestly, we're kind of doing it on faith that that will help us. Right, because there's lots of good data on it. We know it's not hurting us, and there's tons of good research. But you don't, you take it today, you don't feel it tomorrow. You know, uh, but there are other things you can do for your health that you actually do feel pretty quickly, and that's a big plus. And and so, I think when you're looking at wellness, especially if you want people to keep up with wellness stuff, you have to give them both the long game stuff like turmeric, but also stuff that will help them quickly because people want results. Sure. Because, I mean, if you tell me I got to do this and I'm not going to see results for six months or a year, it's going to be real easy to fall off the wagon and not continue to, to do the routine, whatever it happens to be. But when we do something, you know, and we see results within maybe a few days or a week or two, right. then that's going to motivate you, whether it's losing weight or, you know, getting stronger or bulking up or whatever your, your goal happens to be. So, yeah, that's a very, very interesting because... Um, well, here's the other problem with that, too, is that um, you're seeing what actually happens but not what would have happened so for example like say you know you start taking turmeric 
and a year from now you feel the same way you feel today. Did it help you? You know, maybe not. Or maybe you would have had some terrible illness and you didn't get it because you were taking the turmeric. You, so, you don't, so the trouble is you don't know what would have happened had you not taken it. You just know what ended up happening. So, so why would somebody want to take that? What would some of the long-term benefits be as long as we're kind of talking about that? Well, so one of the here, so here's the thing. So if you look at like a lot of Asian cultures, mm -hmm. turmeric is very popular in, in food and it was used for medicinal purposes in a lot of, particularly Southeast Asia. And it's been around for thousands of years as sort of a food slash medicine in Asia. And, and they were really onto something. Uh, for one thing, it, it seems to help prevent inflammation. So a lot of aging, we think is, I'm very into this anti-aging stuff. A lot of aging, we think is due to inflammation. You know, you have chronic inflammation, your immune system is activated all the time. And what that does is it damages cells throughout your body. It's like your body's constantly in this sort of stressed out fight or flight mode. And that's very toxic. It's very unhealthy. So we think that turmeric does a lot of things like decreases your risk of Alzheimer's disease. It helps with inflammatory bowel disease or autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease. It seems to reduce the risk of cancer and heart disease. I mean, almost all of the kind of commonly associated things with aging, turmeric seems to reduce. And the cool I had part heard, I had it, heard that it had anti-inflammatory properties. Yes, yes. And, 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 and the thing about it that's great is it's pretty cheap and it has no, at least that we know of, no side effects. So, you know, in the world of options, you know, how many things are there out there that are relatively inexpensive seemingly have zero side effects and may have tons of long-term benefits. You know, there, are, there just aren't that many things out there like that. No, they're not. And, you know, you have, we all have to be careful about, you know, what we put in our bodies. I mean, I take a handful of vitamins a couple times a day. You know, I'd rather be doing that than taking a handful of medicine and pills. Yes, yes, you know? yes. And, and, you know, somebody, people, you know, if, if I have a friend over and, I'm, you know, I'm taking my vitamins, you're like, man, that's a lot of vitamins. I'm like, well, you know, I want to stay healthy, you know? So, I mean, I'm taking, you know, my glucosamine and chondritin and MSM, and I'm taking DHEA and, and, and a multivitamin and uh, calcium and something from my mind and something for the prostate and something for, you know, the eyes. And there are all these different things. And it's like, you know what, as long as I'm helping myself not get worse, I know it's at least maintaining where I'm at. Right. Kind of like you're saying right. with your turmeric, it's like it, you may not be seeing an immediate effect, but how do you know it hasn't been preventing you from getting sick? Right, like, right. At my age and working on computers all the time, I don't need glasses. That's like unheard of. Like wow. I'm not wearing contacts right now. I have glasses. I got 20-20 vision and you know, 50 years old. And it's like, wait a minute. How, you know, a lot of people have glasses at my age and hey, knock on, on wood, I won't need them for a long time, maybe ever, but who knows? I know they say they eventually will go, but we'll see. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> hey, every little bit you can do, right? So, right, right, right. But yeah, absolutely. So the, the book, uh, since we're talking about the health of this, and we'll get into some of the telemedicine side of this, uh, that you wrote, Why Doctors Skip Breakfast, was recently released. So what inspired you to, re to, uh, to write the book? And what's it about? So the book is about modern techniques to prevent aging primarily. So it's actually very exciting because I think all of us have sort of taken for granted that as time goes by, we get old and we get sick and we get frail. You know, we, we think it's just a matter of time before we get cancer or Alzheimer's disease, that our energy goes away, that we start forgetting things. Because that's that what we're we've been told. To do. 
That's what we've been told. And you know, it's funny because one of my other big interests is in real estate. I'm, I'm really into seniors and senior housing. And of course, one of the things they always recommend to people is you want to get like a one-story house, you know, so you don't have to climb stairs. And we're telling people that can climb stairs to buy houses that don't have stairs because we're, we're assuming that it's just a matter of time before you can't climb stairs. And so we have this mindset that, get, that getting old and getting frail is just sort of the deal. You know, that's just what happens. So, so the book talks about research that's come out of Harvard and USC and UCLA and some other top places, MIT, that showed that we actually don't have to fall victim to these aging traps that we imagine. And it also talks about some great new research about ways of treating depression, which over 17 million people have and is related to aging, and also ways of getting improved sleep, both to get better sleep in general for your health, and also, uh, and also because improved sleep will, uh, will improve performance. So someone like you, you're obviously, you're a very effective, very successful athlete. And, and, and a lot of athletes are sort of cluing into how sleep can help. It's the, huge, the tight, and stress, yeah. right? And it stress sleep. And, you know, we're also stressed out all the time. And, right. you know, when we're wound up or when we're stressed out, it's very hard to kind of turn it off, you know, at the end of the night. And I mean, myself included and a lot of people, it's like when you finally sit down and, and you go to bed, whatever time it happens to be at night or morning. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you still have things racing. Hopefully at night. <laughs> What's that? Hopefully at night. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I'm a night owl. It's, I, just, oh, okay, I okay. usually go to bed about, you know, one or two in the morning just about, but uh, it's, uh, but I mean, that's, you know, good night's sleep is obviously super, super important. So I, I've, I've pulled up here for those watching the, uh, the video uh, on our, on our YouTube channel that uh, the book, why doctors get breakfast is up here. So it, it talks about also de treating depression which, uh, as you mentioned, so that's, uh, that's awesome. So, I mean, just, you know, who wouldn't want to, you know, reverse aging, not be depressed and, and get a good night's sleep. So I think it's a fantastic uh, subtitle to the book, as well as a funny uh, and catchy title, Why Doctors Skip Breakfast. So why do doctors skip breakfast? <laughs> yeah, so here's the thing. So I, I worked at a major, before coming to Beverly Hills, I worked at sort of a major academic hospital. And so we worked at one of those places where like the sickest of the sick come for major surgeries. And the people I work with are all these like top-notch you know, surgeons, anesthesiologists, you name it. They all trained at all the best places, saved lives, and busy people. And in the morning, you know, we get there and kind of hang out before starting. And people would have their books out and they'd have their, their coffee. Everybody drinks coffee. Uh, you know, their supplies. We'd kind of discuss what's going on. But almost nobody would eat. They would drink coffee, but hardly anyone ate. And... I just sort of took for granted that's how everybody was. You know, I was fasting because I'm into intermittent fasting, and I noticed that most of my colleagues were in intermittent fasting. But then, I don't know why, but I just noticed when I was out a different time for breakfast one day, the time I did go out for breakfast, everybody was eating. And then I started looking around, and I noticed like outside of the hospital, like all these people were eating breakfast. So I thought, wow, like it's really interesting that, that the doctors, like these really like effective, knowledgeable people, None of us are eating, but then everybody else is. And I thought, we're doing a really poor job of, of telling people how to be healthier. You know, I thought, we know what to do. Like, we know that, that eating breakfast is not a good idea for most people, but we haven't done a good job of communicating it because everybody else is eating their, their Fruit Loops and their Corn Pops or their bagels or everything else, and they're poisoning themselves. Right. 
Yeah, because, I mean, breakfast, I mean, it, it really is the most important meal of the day in my eyes because, I mean, all night long, your body's burning calories. You wake up, you need to refuel and get your brain the energy it needs to tackle the day as well as your body. And, I mean, I'm personally, I mean, I'm addicted to egg sandwiches. I make killer egg sandwiches in the morning, you know, on English muffins or bagels, you know, scramble, you know, mix up the eggs, cut up some, you know, tomatoes and peppers and, you know, whatever else I want to throw in there, you know, stuff from the garden, especially, you know, now coming into the, the summer, I'll be doing that in the, uh, you know, picking stuff fresh out of the garden. And, uh, and man, that's just, it's the best because then you're fueled up and you can focus and uh, it is important. But as you said, it's, it's funny because you're kind of like not leading by example, you know, <laughs> like you're right. Uh, right. So interesting. And, and we're not explaining, we're not explaining about kind of the logic behind it. You know, I think that's the, the problem is, you know, we're, we're kind of, <laughs> you'll see like, again, like with turmeric, I hate the harp in that, but like, that's another thing. Like almost every doctor I know takes it. But, but you never hear them saying, oh, yeah, you should take turmeric, you know? So it's kind of odd that, like, we're doing all these things, but we're not actually, like, going out there doing a good job recommending it to other people. And I think that's our fault. So that was one of the things I really wanted to address. And why, at least in my opinion, based on the research, fasting is a good thing to do and why there are certain foods that are better than others and, and certain supplements you want to take and others you want to avoid. Sure. Well, like anything, right? There's, there's good stuff and then there's bad. And uh, right. if somebody doesn't do the research and uh, hopefully they're reading the right research uh, to, deter, you know, to educate themselves about it, it's, it's tough. It can be confusing. So that's, that's awesome though, because I mean, you want to be able to get that information out there because if it's something that can help other people be healthier or maintain their levels of health or aging, uh, you know, it's important. And, uh, and, 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 you know, as I said, I mean, sleep is a, is a really, really, you know, key component. And I think a lot of us are not getting the sleep that we need because we are so overly stimulated all day long. And we have so much bombarding us from technology and from television and just in our lives, you know, it's like, boom, oh, there's another text. Oh, there's another text. Oh, now my phone's ringing up. Oh, I got to check my email. It's like, you know, Every time we turn around, there's things that are, you know, vying for our attention and we right. have a hard time kind of just, <sighs> you know, just, <laughs> just, just stop, just turning it all off, you know? And that's right. why I think things like yoga are, are extremely important because it helps people sort of center themselves, you know, focus on their breathing, let them sort of take things down a notch and relax. And that's one reason why I love martial arts because it really helps me in, with the stress relief. It helps me sort of escape from you know, the, the day to day, hour by hour, minute by minute, you know, demands on my time. And we all have those. So we all need right. to find a way to sort of, you know, take it down a notch or two or three <laughs> and, and relax. Exactly. Exactly. No, I, you're, you're right. And, and, you know, I think you're kind of getting at this, that the phone and the computer are big problems right now when it comes to sleep I mean, huge problems. And, you know, there's this whole deal with, with sleep hygiene. I mean, first of all, like, people have to kind of accept the fact that sleep is important. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I think a lot of people almost look at not sleeping as, like, a badge of honor. You know, like, oh, I worked so hard, you know, like, I didn't, oh, I didn't sleep, you know, I'll sleep, I'll sleep when I'm dead, you know, all of these things. Yeah, well, but, you know, but, watch, you're going to be dead sooner than later. <laughs> you're going to be dead sooner than later, right? And, you know, so in the book, and we actually bring up an example, and it's kind of a thought experiment, but it's interesting to think about. It turns out that nearly every single animal sleeps. It's actually pretty surprising. Like, nearly every single animal, from humans, of course, mammals, uh, birds, reptiles sleep, sea creatures sleep, even insects. They have a thing very similar to sleep. I mean, sleep is 
really conserved. The need to sleep is really conserved across nearly every single animal in existence. And that shows how important it is. I mean, do a thought experiment. You know, we have this in the book. Imagine there's, imagine just by chance, uh, a fox evolves that doesn't need to sleep. You know, I, I bring up the example like Billy, the sleepless fox. So let's say Billy evolves, he's born, he doesn't need to sleep, right? What an advantage Billy would have, right? Because he would have, look, he would have time to look for food all day. He, he could look for food whenever he wants. He could look for a great place to live all the time. He would be less vulnerable to predators because, you know, while you're sleeping, a wolf comes by and eats you. You know, right. but Billy Everybody wouldn't have to worry about then. that. Bill, Billy wouldn't have to worry about that. And Billy, you know, Billy would really woo the ladies because he, he, he has more time to go out and, and meet the lady foxes, right? So Billy will have more kids. So if a sleepless fox ever evolved, they would take over all the foxes. No one would eat them. They'd have more women. They'd have more food. They'd have everything. Right. But there are no sleepless foxes. And that is because sleep is so important that across all animals, we, we need it. And, and we, evolution through all of these animal species hasn't found a way of getting around that. And so I think that we need to accept that sleep is very important for, for our lives. Well, it helps your body rejuvenate and repair itself. And, and you know, there's so many, so many benefits to that. So people that, you know, are obviously concerned about their health, you know, all the time for various reasons. During this whole coronavirus, COVID-19 issue, we have the problem where people may be sick, but they won't want to go to the doctor because they don't want to be exposed to other people that may potentially have something that they could catch, whether it's COVID-19 or something else. So telemedicine has really begun to evolve. And, you know, it's been around for a while, but I think this is really going to push it so much faster and further forward, uh, like, like a lot of other industries uh, because of this, you know, online education being another. Now, you have right. founded your own telemedicine clinic. And, you know, obviously you've realized that there's a huge need for this. I don't know how, how long ago you founded it, but um, can you tell a little bit, little bit about, you know, the, the telemedicine clinic you have founded and what made you sort of decide to do that versus, you know, a physical clinic where patients would be coming? Well, I want to start out by saying I agree with everything you said about COVID-19 and Honestly, if I had to go to the doctor with something that wasn't serious, I'd be afraid to go personally because I know that the places are doing a pretty good job of separating the respiratory people from the non-respiratory people and they're checking temperatures and they're doing alcohol and everything else. But COVID is such a contagious virus that um, I would still be worried despite their best efforts of going in. Now, obviously, if you had to go in, if you had appendicitis or something, you, know, you, you just bite the bullet and go in. But but if it's something that's not that big of a deal, personally, I would probably try to wait. And, and it's interesting because it seems that the kinds of viruses you're exposed to in these healthcare facilities may be more dangerous than the version you would get at home. Because the people that have some of the highest mortality from COVID are the healthcare workers. Right. And they're around probably sicker people, which is what's bringing them into the hospital in the first place. And, and maybe they're getting a higher exposure level. So, so I agree with what you said. You know, I think it's a little bit risky to go to the doctor now. And, and, and honestly, I, I think that this will probably cause some sort of long-term shift in how people behave and interact with doctors. You know, it's kind Absolutely. of like you get the bite of the apple. You know, once you, one, once you realize that 
hey, you know, like I could save an hour in the car and parking and everything else and checking in. And, and in addition to the risk of being exposed to viruses, why would you not see the doctor at home if it's anything? 